again, and welcome to another edition of This Week in Labor. I am your host, Tim Billadu, and we got a lot to cover this week, so let's jump right in. Our first story is from InTheseTimes.com, and the title is Hashtag Red for Med. 1,800 Vermont nurses are on strike demanding their hospital put patients over profits. The article is written by Rachel Johnson. Rank 47th for pay in the nation, high turnover, stagnant wages, and chronic staffing shortages. Sound familiar? You'd be forgiven for thinking these figures refer to the working conditions of West Virginia teachers, or those in any of the red states that erupted in strikes during this spring's teacher rebellion. But in fact, these figures describe the daily realities confronting nurses in none other than the widely hailed progressive state of Vermont. On Thursday, 1,800 nurses and 300 health professionals at the University of Vermont Medical Center, UVMMC, began a two-day strike to demand more for themselves and their patients. At the center of the strike are issues related to safe staffing, competitive pay, and calls for a hospital-wide $15 minimum wage. One of the central demands is for safe staffing ratios, which the union representing the nurses, the Vermont Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals, otherwise known as VFNHP, sees as intimately connected to workers' pay. The hospital ranks among the lowest for pay in a state that ranks 47th in the nation for nurses wages adjusted for the cost of living. The longest serving nurses at the hospital have not received a pay increase in nine years. The VFNHP report shows that low wages contribute directly to staffing issues because the hospital cannot recruit and retain staff. The UVMMC, a level one trauma center and the second largest employer in the state, routinely has vacancies of between 130 and 180 positions. To compensate for these shortages, the hospital spends exorbitant sums of money to employ traveling nurses for 13-week stints. The union claims that in some cases, the hospital gives scheduling preferences to these traveling nurses. In addition to low wages, the UVMMC employs lean production methods that put both nurses and patients at risk. The union claims that the hospital has frequent shortages of support staff, including nurses, aides, and orderlies. According to Tristan Aidy, a nurse practitioner and member of the bargaining committee, the nurses in the rehabilitation unit routinely do laundry for up to an hour a day, while nurses in the oncology unit are consistently tasked with billing and coding duties. And nurses across the board are forced to regularly clean rooms and accompany patients to far-off places in the building. A says that such practices directly contribute to an unsafe working environment. Nurses cannot adequately care for patients when they are forced to do the work of support staff in addition to their primary duties. Representatives for the UMMC did not return a request for comment. Striking nurses say that UVMMC management's cutting of corners betrays the priorities of a hospital management more committed to profits than patients. The nonprofit hospital experienced financial problems after a former CEO's fraud scandal and the recession, which it largely climbed out of by freezing wages in order to have more cash on hand, thereby increasing its bond rating. Since then, UVMMC has undergone a period of rapid expansion, buying out four hospitals and smaller clinics in New York and Vermont, and in the process becoming the single largest employer in the region. UVMMC also has plans to begin construction on a new building for the Burlington Hospital that would cost $187.7 million, but has not released any information about how they plan to staff the new facility. Meanwhile, the hospital provides lavish salaries for its executives. As Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders noted in a July 6 
press conference in support of the nurses, I find it really hard to believe that the hospital has enough money to pay nearly $11 million to 15 administrators, including more than $2 million to the CEO, John Brumstead, but apparently doesn't have enough money to pay their nurses the same wages as nurses earn just across the lake in Plattsburgh, where the cost of living is in fact lower. The hospital is also no longer hurting for cash. Its total operating budget is $1.2 billion. Meanwhile, UVMMC's chief financial officer Todd Keating disclosed that the hospital has more than 220 days of operating cash on hand. Court of the union's demands is fair compensation for workers whose labor has fueled the hospital's newly acquired wealth and expansion. The union is asking for a $15 minimum wage for all ancillary hospital staff, many of whom are not included in the bargaining contract. This expression of worker solidarity was supported by the vast majority of union members, notes 80. We recognize that we have power through our union that these people don't have. Many of them are new Americans, and many came here through refugee resettlement programs. They are fearful of joining a union. The $15 minimum wage has one plank in a broader strategy of deep internal organizing by the union that began over a year ago. Frustrated over previous concessionary contracts, the union began building a network that would provide the rank and file with the confidence to stick it out at the bargaining table and win key demands, including a 24% wage increase on par with the salaries of nurses at Champlain Valley Physicians Hospital in Plattsburgh, New York, which is also part of the University of Vermont Health Network. The VFNHP formed member action teams that put rank-and-file members in leadership positions and enabled the union to achieve a 94% vote to improve the strike from its membership. The Nurses' Solidarity Campaign also looked outward to labor and progressive allies in the Burlington community and beyond. The union made a point of reaching out to each other union in the region, including the Burlington Bus Drivers and Teachers Unions, both of which have gone on strike in recent years. The coalition of left groups, including the International Socialist Organization and Democratic Socialists of America, and the Vermont Workers' Center formed the group Alliance in Support of UVMMC Nurses, holding educational benefits and a picket in support of the strike. A new hashtag and Facebook page, hashtag Red for Med, is taking a cue from the solidarity campaign Red for Ed in support of the teacher strike in Arizona, encouraging supporters to post photos of themselves wearing red in support of the strike. On the picket line, community groups and nurses from the New York State Nurses Association and Massachusetts Nurses Association will be joining the VFNHP. UVMMC's management, on the other hand, has been intransigent. Late Wednesday night, union member Philip McComb noted in a Facebook post that the union had offered a compromise in the hopes of settling this contract and avert a work stoppage, but that management rejected the proposal and refused to negotiate. This refusal comes on the heels of a campaign of bullying and intimidation by management throughout the bargaining process, according to striking nurses. The union has filed a total of 21 unfair labor practice charges against management, including attempts to prevent union staffers from coming on site, taking down union flyers, and refusing to seat key decision makers, hospital executives, at the bargaining table. The strike slated to be one of the most significant in the region in years comes on the heels of the wave of recent teacher strikes in the United States, as well as a massive ongoing strike involving 30,000 nurses in New Zealand. Scholars have linked the labor activism of nurses and teachers not only because they are both female-dominated professions, but also because of the strategy 
agencies they use to organize. In their book, Caring for America, Eileen Boris and Jennifer Klein refer to these strategies as care worker unionism. Boris and Klein argue that care worker unionism draws a straight line between working conditions and the broader social welfare system, healthcare for nurses, public education for teachers, which defines the conditions of care. Care workers have thus had to advocate for larger social goods as part of their demands for expanded workers' rights. That is certainly what we're seeing in Vermont, as nurses are striking not only for a higher salary and better working conditions for themselves, but for a community hospital that puts patients above profits. And that offers all workers dignity and a living wage. Nurses, like teachers, often face the sidelining of their concerns as workers in favor of the paramount needs of the recipients of their care. But what about the patients is a common hypothetical question meant to discredit any strike or work disruption among healthcare providers. But Vermont nurses know that the two issues are not counterposed. If the care of patients is to be valued at all, the providers of that care must themselves be valued and materially supported. Our next story follows the theme of striking teachers, and it is from TheGuardian.com, written by Mike Elk. The title of the article is, We're Militant Again, U.S. Teachers at Convention Galvanized by Wave of Strikes. Thousands of teachers gathered in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania this weekend for the American Federation of Teachers Convention and to discuss a plan of action for the new school year after a series of extraordinary strikes across the U.S. over pay and condition. The convention comes as the teachers' union movement has been galvanized by a wave of strikes mainly in traditional Republican states. At the same time, the public sector unions are facing a brand new assault on their finances after the Supreme Court ruled in June that public sector employees in unionized workplaces can opt out of paying union dues. Addressing the meeting on Friday, former Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton said, We have to gear up again because the challenges we face now are truly unlike any we have seen in our lifetime. However, the teachers gathered in Pittsburgh say that instead of being deterred by the attacks on them, that the attacks have forced their union's members to re-engage more in order to keep members from leaving their unions. Whose schools are schools, cried out Chicago Teachers Union Vice President Jesse Sharkey as thousands of teachers poured out to the David L. Lawrence Convention Center and into the blistering heat of Pittsburgh streets. We are all militant again. We will all go to jail if we have to, said Robert Russo, a teacher union leader from New Jersey who served 15 days in jail in 1970 for his role in an illegal teacher strike. They are taking away rights they are taking away everything we have worked for for years, and people are very invigorated. Despite school being out for the summer, teachers around the country aren't taking a break. They are mobilizing support for more teacher strikes in states across the country, including in Louisiana, where a survey of 3,800 teachers in May performed by the union showed that 61% of teachers supported a strike. Some of our local presidents were calling and saying they saw what was happening in West Virginia and Oklahoma, and that they had been hearing in 
their locals that there were teachers and school employees seeing these strikes and becoming inspired, says Larry Carter, a president of Louisiana Federation of Teachers. Teachers say that the key to these strikes being able to galvanize public support is connecting the cause of teachers to wider community issues. This is a public sector strike. We service children, so if we don't have the kids at school, we gotta have community folks out here that are gonna talk to kids, said Tia Edison, a teacher from Louisville, who helped organize a strike there in the spring. If you don't have community support, it's going to fail. The AFT used their rally to push not just better schools, but also gun control. Speaking at the rally was Mei Ling, a rising senior from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, where 17 were killed in February, including three members of the AFT. We need to stand up. We need to speak out because no one else is going to do it for us, said Ling, a survivor of the Parkland massacre, speaking from the back of an improvised stage on a pickup truck. We have a president who doesn't care about any one of us, just about the blood money inside of his pocket. As Ling was speaking, fireworks from nearby PNC Park were set off as a player hit a home run. Visibly triggered by the explosion, Ling started to tremble and stopped speaking. Randy Weingarten, the president of the AFT, stepped up on the pickup truck and began to pat Ling's back in an effort to comfort her. These students are speaking truth to us, and sometimes even we feel anguished by their truth and the truth they need to speak, said Weingarten. Weingarten has been at the forefront of efforts to get the labor movement more engaged on gun control. The National Rifle Association even targeted her after she helped to lead a union effort to divest from gun companies. As a labor leader, Weingarten, the first openly lesbian president of the major union, has been a trailblazing leader, pushing the labor movement to engage more on issues of race and gender and to get involved in community struggle in an effort to ingrain unions more in the political fabric of communities. Her organizing efforts appeared to pay off as public opinion polling showed massive support for the wave of teachers' strikes that hit the nation this spring. While her union faces its toughest challenge in decades after the Supreme Court's decision in the Janus case, she thinks the ruling has given her union a golden opportunity to organize. I am more excited than ever, said Weingarten. They rue the day they decided to come after us because it's motivated us even more. Our final story this week comes to us from the New York Times and is written by Patricia Cohen. The title of the story is Paychecks Lag as Profits Soar and Prices Erode Wage Gains. Corporate profits have rarely swept up a bigger share of the nation's wealth, and workers have rarely shared a smaller one. The lopsided split is especially pronounced given how low the official unemployment rate has sunk. Throughout the recession and much of its aftermath, when many Americans were grateful to receive a paycheck instead of a pink slip, jobs and raises were in short supply. Now complaints of labor shortages are as common as tweets. For the first time in a long while, workers have some leverage to push for more. Yet many are far from making up all the lost ground. Hourly earnings have moved forward at a crawl, with higher prices giving workers less buying power than they had last summer. Last-minute scheduling, no poaching, and non-complete clauses, and the use of independent contractors are popular tactics that put workers at a disadvantage. Threats to move operations overseas, where labor is cheaper, continue to loom. And in the background, the nation's central bankers stand poised to raise interest rates and deliberately 
deliberately rein in growth if wages climb too rapidly. Workers understandably are asking whether they are getting a raw deal. Sure, you can get a job slinging hamburgers somewhere or working in a warehouse, said Christina Jones, 53, of Mobile, Alabama. Miss Jones spent eight months searching for a job with living wages and benefits after being laid off from a paper company where she had worked for nearly 13 years. Dozens of interviews later, she landed work last month at a concrete crushing company as an accounts payable clerk for $14 an hour, two-thirds her previous salary. You hear, oh, the unemployment rate is as low as it's ever been, Miss Jones said, but it was discouraging. Businesses have been more successful at regaining losses from the downturn. Since the recession ended in 2009, Corporate profits have grown at an annualized rate of 6.5%. Several sectors have done much better. On Friday, for example, banks like J.P. Morgan Chase and Citigroup reported outsized double-digit earnings in the second quarter. Yearly wage growth has yet to hit 3%, and when it does, the Federal Reserve, which has a mandate to keep inflation under control even as it is supposed to maximize employment, can be expected to tap the brakes. As Fed policymakers have explained, allowing the economy to run too hot could lead eventually to a significant economic downturn, and persistent wage increases, unlike growing profit margins, are considered a signal that the heat is on. The bank's primary method of cooling the economy is to dampen spending and investing by raising interest rates and making it more expensive to borrow money, an antidote that could hurt profits in some sectors as well as trim payrolls. The thinking goes like this. Better to inflict some pain now in the form of higher joblessness and sluggish wage growth than to allow more pain later. After keeping benchmark interest rates at near zero levels during the recession, the Fed has been gradually nudging them up. So far this year, it has raised rates twice. With tariffs piling up and potentially pushing prices higher, odds are that the Fed will push through two more increases before 2018 ends. The Labor Department reported this week that one inflation measure, the Consumer Price Index, has increased 2.9% in 12 months, the highest level in six years. Discomfort with a tight labor market and growing worker bargaining power is to some degree baked into the Fed's makeup. Pressure to raise wages during expansions will inevitably be seen as precursors to insidious inflationary pressure. The conventional wisdom that higher wages inevitably lead to higher prices, however, is flimsy, some economists argue. It theoretically makes sense, Michael R. Strain, an economist at the Conservative American Enterprise Institute, said of the link between wage increases and inflation, but empirically, it's increasingly difficult to find a real strong link. A study by the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland, for example, concluded that the connections among wages prices and economic activity are more akin to a tangled web than a straight line, and that the ability of wages to help predict future inflation is limited. Regardless, there is plenty of evidence that workers have yet to receive their fair share of this most recent expansion, or even the previous one. Since the century's start, labor's share of the nation's income has sunk to the lowest levels in decades. In 2000, when the jobless rate last fell below 4%, corporations pulled in 8.3% of the nation's total income in the form of profits. Wages and salaries across the entire workforce accounted for roughly 66%. Now the jobless rate is again fluttering below 4%, but corporate profits account for 13.2% of the nation's income. Workers' compensation has fallen to 62%. If workers' share 
had not shrunk, they, they would have had an additional $532 billion, or about $3,400 each, said Jared Bernstein, an economic advisor to former Vice President Joseph R. Biden Jr. And at this point in the recovery, shifting some of those corporate profits to workers would have no effect on the inflation, he noted. In the tug of war between workers and investors, Americans living on a paycheck have seldom been left with a shorter end of the rope. Freddie Amador has spent years working for various temporary help agencies, packing boxes of baby clothes, quality checking packages of popcorn, and doing other work at warehouses across the Chicago area. Despite what he says are frequent promises of permanent work, he has never been able to escape temp status. Recently, his situation got worse. He used to receive holidays and paid vacations, he said, but the agency that offered them lost its contract to another firm that did not. They want to avoid all the benefits, said Mr. Amador. Mr. Amador, 34, said he earns $12 an hour, far less than the $20 an hour or more earned by permanent employees doing similar work. For extra money, he drives for the ride-hailing service Lyft on the weekends. Even if you have really good skills, you have to start as a temp, said Mr. Amador, who moved to the United States from Honduras 12 years ago. They never give you an opportunity to move on. Economists have offered various explanations for why workers are not doing better. The steady weakening of labor unions, the ability of the American companies to find of American companies to find cheaper labor abroad or automate further piddling productivity growth and the rise of superstar companies that are extremely efficient with a relatively small labor force. The recent tax overhaul has further pumped up corporate earnings. Promises that lower tax bills for businesses would translate into higher wages have yet to materialize. Higher gas and medical care costs have eaten away at whatever gains most workers have made. Nor are those extra profits going into business expansion. Since the first of the year, American companies including Apple, Wells Fargo, and McDonald's have announced nearly $680 billion in buybacks of their own stock, according to the research firm TrimTabs. In essence, they are directing a majority of the windfall to investors and chief executives who tend to have large stock-based compensation packages. Profits are also financing foreign mergers and acquisitions. A lot of U.S. businesses are looking abroad to see what they can buy, said Jason Gerlis, managing director of TMF Group USA, a global consulting firm, because it's easier to finance or capitalize offshore. The reason is a change in the tax law that limited interest deductibility on domestic investments but not on those abroad. International deals in the first half of 2018 nearly doubled compared to the same period last year. The United States may be leading other big industrialized countries in economic growth, but its labor force does not fare well in comparison. American workers' share of their country's total output fell much sharper and faster than the average reported by the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The United States also had a larger proportion of low-wage workers than nearly every other member. When the economy was struggling, employers became accustomed to inboxes flooded with resumes and snaking lines of eager applicants. Many may have forgotten or never learned how to compete for workers. When it comes to complaints of a labor shortage, as Neil Kashkari, president of the Minneapolis Fed, has said, if you're not raising wages, then it just sounds like whining. That's going to do it for this week's edition of This Week in Labor. Don't forget to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher, as well as our Facebook page. So long, and as always, in solidarity, this has been This Week in Labor.
got one big union. You've got to join it by yourself. Everybody here will join it with you. You've got to join the one big union by yourself. If that road gets rough and rocky, if the hills get steep and high, we will sing as we go marching, and we'll win one big union by and by. Brothers got to join that one big union. Brother's got to join it by himself. Everybody here will join it with him. Brother's got to join the one big union by himself. Sister's got to join that one big union. Sister's got to join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with her. Sister's got to join the one big union by herself. Everybody's got to join that one big union. Everybody's got to join it by herself. Everybody here will join it with her. Yes. Everybody join one big union by themselves. I'm gonna join that one big union. I'm gonna join it by myself. Don't want nobody to join it for me. I'm gonna join one big union by myself. I'm gonna join that one big union. Yes, I am. I'm gonna join it by myself. Don't want nobody to join it for me. I'm gonna join the one big union by myself.